Hi, everybody. This is Gad Saad. I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. But before we get started, an important message. If you've been following me for any length of time, you know I believe certain ideas need to be shared. This is one of those ideas. Most people think the only way to make money is in the stock market. But what they don't realize is there are a number of alternative ways to make money today. But one of my favorite and what I feel most ingenious ways I've recently seen is investing in contemporary art. And I'm not alone either. Art is one of the hottest markets in the world, according to the Wall Street Journal. There's a good reason for that. It's a $1.7 trillion asset class. It's grown by 2,539% since 1995 and has beaten the S&P 500 from 1995 to 2020. To take the first step and participate in million-dollar offerings by artists like Picasso, Banksy, and Monet, without having to spend millions of dollars, go to masterworks.io slash sadtruth. Just keep in mind, art is a limited asset, and these incredible offerings have previously sold out in hours. Once again, to skip their waitlist and invest in contemporary art, go to masterworks.io slash sad truth. See important disclaimers at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. And now, today's guest. Today I have a best-selling author. I'll have to ask him what his secrets are for selling 5 million copies of his book. James Clear, how you doing, sir? Hey, God. Great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Uh, likewise. Uh, so let me just tell people who don't know much about you. So you wrote Atomic Habits, which uh, I went on a uh, Google to check it out. Over 5 million sold, 50 plus languages. I'm excited because my last book got, I think, 15 languages. So I'm only about one third of the way of where you are. So there you <laughs> go. Uh, you are the creator of the Habit Journal and publisher of the 321 newsletter. And uh, newsletter. And apparently, I mean, I'm a professor of marketing, but I think I might need to take one of your, your seminars because your ability to market your stuff, God damn, you're good. Uh, so, okay, where do we start? Let's start with uh, Atomic Habits. We can maybe just give us a quick synthesis, and then I have a whole bunch of really, hopefully, cool questions to ask you. Sure. Yeah. Thanks uh, Thanks for the introduction. Um, I wrote a book called Atomic Habits. It's about how to build good habits and break bad ones. And part of my core philosophy is focusing on small changes and getting better each day. And so the phrase atomic habits really has like three kind of meanings that all sort of blend together in the book. Uh, the first meaning of the word atomic is tiny or small, like an atom. And I do think that changes and habits should be small and easy to do. The second meaning is the fundamental unit in a larger system. So like atoms build into molecules, molecules build into compounds and so on. And your habits are kind of like that. They're sort of like the little atoms of your daily routine, and you put them together and you get this larger overall system. And then the third and final meaning is the source of immense energy or power. And I think if you combine all three of those meanings, you sort of understand the narrative arc of the book, which is make changes that are small and easy to do, layer them on top of each other like units in a larger system. And if you do that well and uh, are patient, then you can get some really remarkable and powerful outcomes in the long run. And what, I mean, uh, prior to you becoming a, a successful author, what you, you were a journalist? No, just a lowly blogger. Um, I, uh, I've always been interested in the sciences. My formal education degree is in biomechanics. Uh, so I was mostly like chemistry and physics and things like that in undergrad. 
went to graduate school, uh, went to business school, got my MBA. And while I was there, I was analyzing venture capital investment in the region as part of my kind of graduate assistantship. And uh, that was where I kind of got the itch to start my own thing. And over the next seven or eight years, uh, I just began writing about habits, behavior change, psychology, and so on. And I wrote one article uh, every Monday and Thursday. And so it was really that twice a week writing routine that led to me learning about uh, a lot of the research and scholarship around habits and uh, combined that with my own kind of experimentation, building habits in the gym or the kitchen or, you know, wherever. Well, I guess that points to the fact that life is truly serendipitous and that we don't always have a very clear trajectory of where we're going to go, where we're going to go. And that certainly seems to be your story. I certainly didn't start out planning to be an author. Uh, I still, I think I identify more as an entrepreneur uh, or as a creator than I do as an author. Um, but uh, right, it turns out that writing is something I liked. I didn't even know that when I really started. I was starting the blog and starting the email list at jamesclear.com to like have a platform to launch stuff, to have an audience uh, to reach people. And along the way, this funny thing happened where I was like, oh, I actually kind of like writing each week. Um, and so eventually, you know, found myself uh, sort of becoming an author. I'll, I'll talk about uh, the, the beauty of uh, being an author in a second. But I want to quickly tell you a personal story of that that's actually linked to you. I walked into one of my uh, favorite cafes with my uh, wife uh, a couple of days ago, and there was a book on the table from some, some other patron, and it was The Power of Habit, which I didn't know, but I at first I thought it was your book because somehow, mm. you know, you have tunnel vision. When you're gonna speak to the guy who's written about habits, you think every book about habits is that guy. I sure. said, oh, that guy's coming on my show uh, next week. And so, and then it turned out that it wasn't you, The Power of Habit. But then another person heard me uh, saying this said, oh, what, what's your show? What's, who's the guy? And so on. So I ended up sitting with this guy, chatting with him for 30 minutes, reigniting his interest in psychology and the neurosciences. And it all started again from a serendipitous moment of me saying, oh, this guy's coming on my show. So one of the things I talk about in my next book is that life is a playground. And so you really need to take all these wonderful opportunities to connect with people. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. I think... Uh... It's easy to get out of that mode of seeing life as play. It's easy to feel like things are responsibilities that you have to go to work or, you know, drop your kids off at school or drive them to practice or I don't know, all these different obligations that we have. But it always feels much lighter, much more inspiring to feel like you get to do those things, right? I get to go to work. I get to drop my kids off. I get to go to their practice. And um, as soon as you view your obligations through the lens of play, uh, life, become, life becomes much, I think, lighter and more joyous. And um, I say that as like a reminder to myself, you know, yeah. it's very easy to take yourself too seriously. And uh, I always find that I'm having better days when I'm viewing things as play rather than as work. Well, you know, I, I, I'm so glad you said don't take yourself so seriously because people confuse that, you know, not taking yourself seriously as not being a serious person. They're very different things, right? Mm. When I put on my professorial hat and I'm writing some, you know, fancy scientific paper, I can be as austere and professorial as I need to be. And when I go to give a talk at Stanford Business School, I can be about as professorial as one can get. But yet if anybody, I mean, I don't know if you follow any of my stuff, I make fun of myself, I joke around, I do mm -hmm. satirical pieces. A lot of people say, oh, that's not, that's not becoming a of you as you know a fancy schmancy professor and i i think that that's such a bad way to view life right i mean it in no way detracts from the seriousness of my professorial career 
to also recognize that I'm a multifaceted creature who who's a child at heart who plays. My scientific word is a form of play. So, mm. so I'm so glad that you view life in similar lenses. There's a great talk by John Cleese, uh, the comedian and um, and writer, where he says like something to the effect of, "I don't know what being dead serious all the time gets you." And his point is like it's actually easier to learn if you have humor mixed in. I mean, people are more engaged when they're laughing. They're paying more attention. They're, um, uh, yeah, their energy is like lit up. They're in a better position to learn, experience life and, uh, take in all the stimuli around them when they're in a good mood. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's much better to be playful and joyous than to be uh, serious all the time. It also, uh, we're all going to make a lot of mistakes. You know, like you're going to you're going to get a lot wrong. So if you're going to be serious all the time and act like you're going to get it right every minute of the day, it just is it's a tough expectation to reach. Uh, you know, we're all human. Yeah. Just to go back to when you said about how much you enjoyed uh, writing and then I want to drill down about some of the more technical aspects of your book. Uh, you know, I often tell my wife that, you know, the need to write for me is akin to if you're thirsty and you need to drink or if you need to go to the bathroom. I get this immediate sudden urge of I need to be creative. And then I go to a cafe and I'll sit down for four hours. I, I'll do some work on you know my next paper or next book or whatever. And then I really feel a sense of relief that I've done it. Do you, do you mm. get do you, do you do you do you follow my that feeling? No, that resonates a lot. I'm, you know, I'm kind of in the middle of this right now because I'm working on a second book and the days when I do the work, even if it, you know, the thing, one of the hard things about working on a book or a long-term project like that is you sit down and you work hard for four hours or eight hours or whatever it is. And it's still just as much a mess as when you started. And you have to do that for like 200 days in a row before it starts to look like it's starting to coalesce and come together a little bit more. And so it's, it's challenging to show up and do that on such a, a big long-term project. But on the days when I sit down and I do the work, I feel, yeah, there is some deeper sense of relief because you know that you're making progress, even if it was smaller than what you had hoped. And on the days when I don't write, when I don't do the work, that's when I have this kind of persistent underlying tension yeah. that is not getting resolved. And it's because you know you're not advancing. You know you're not making progress on it. And uh, so in that sense, yeah, doing the work, doing the writing is like a release valve. You know, when I, when I, so, uh, you know, we, everybody has a different writing uh, process with some commonalities. One of the things that I do when I, you know, I have a section that I need to fix or go back to, I just put XXX colon, hmm. right? So then that way I can go back, use the search index, uh, search uh, thing, and then and then I'll start numbering them, you know, X. It's like a placeholder in the manuscript for it, you. Like exactly. You just go back and you can fill it out later. Exactly. So then I will have XXX1, XX1, XXX2, and so on. And sometimes it goes to, you know, XXX147. So I know that if I did nothing else, there are there's 147 places that remain an utter mess that need to be cleaned up. And as each of these scaffoldings are being cleaned, it's akin to a building, right? I mean, I, I, was, I was driving once with my wife in an area in Montreal that's now really sprouted. And I say, it's unbelievable how they can put up these buildings in a year. And then she looked at me and she said, well, some people will say it's unbelievable that you could write the books that you write. And it's a similar thing, right? Because as you say in your 1% thing, I mean, you start with one stone. You start with the first strike of the uh, on your laptop, 
and then it's one sentence and then it's one paragraph and then one day someone is sitting at a beach somewhere reading your book it's really magical it's transcendental it is in some ways it's crazy how you know you sit down and i mean a book is just built one sentence at a time the way the building is built one brick at a time and so you just need to carve out time to write those sentences and um there is something very magical about it once it's done to see it spread around and you know people in various countries enjoying it and so on it's uh it requires an extreme amount of delayed gratification because you have to spend years researching it and writing it and revising it. And then you've got the whole, depending on, you know, if you want to do a big launch or not, you have like the whole marketing side. You got to do all these interviews and prepare everything, social media posts. And you're doing all of that before you've even sold a copy, before you even yeah. get to launch day. But if you're willing to do all that and do those stages well, then after launch day, it's just a ton of fun. Um, so yeah, yeah it's, a, it's an interesting process. What is it? So in, in my case, so I'm not working on my fifth book, my first four books, three of them were very much within my scientific area, applying evolutionary psychology to, you know, human behavior in general and consumer behavior in particular. And so I had those credentials coming in that that's what I've spent my life doing. And then my fourth book, it's about, you know, having spent nearly three decades as a professor seeing the war on reasons on campuses, and therefore developing a framework for understanding how these what I call idea pathogens or parasitic ideas start at the university and then spread to every nook and cranny of society. So I had that personal and uh, credentialized history to say, okay, I can write about this. In my fifth book, and I'm going to come to a question in a second for you, in my fifth book, I've, I, which I'm now working on, I felt a bit more insecure in that it is kind of a self-help book, although very you know highbrow science. And I felt why would someone want to, why do I, why am I going to be the dispenser of advice, right? And mm. then I thought, well, but, but I do have life experiences. I am a psychologist. There are, but, but to the extent that it wasn't within my, you know, scientific expertise, at first I was tentative about whether people would appreciate that. So now you can see perhaps where I'm going with you. You know, you're coming from a physics and chemistry background. You're now going to help people understand how to, you know, form habits and break bad habits. What gave you the courage to say, well, no, I think I can do this. I've got the, the bona fide credentials, whatever that means to do this. Yeah, it's a great question. I definitely felt all that early on. I had a friend tell me something very important when I first started writing about it. Like I said, I wrote uh, two articles a week on it for a couple of years before I got the book deal and ultimately wrote Atomic Habits. And when I was just starting out, I had all those questions like, who am I to write about this? And uh, he said, well, the way you become an expert is by writing about it every week. And that was kind of an interesting lens for me to think through. You know, I mean, think about anybody who goes through a PhD program or, you know, professors putting out research and papers consistently. It's the act of doing the writing and the research, you know, day in, day out, year in, year out, that leads to the learning and the development of expertise in that particular field. And uh, I was like, you know, it is kind of true. After I had done two articles a week for a couple of years, yeah, there actually aren't that many people who've written 100 plus articles on habits and behavior change. Uh, and so relative to the average person, um, you know, I had studied and read a lot more of that. I also think my primary focus, you know, I'm not an academic. And so my view is to try to be a bridge between the academic research and the science and practical application. And I feel like the main value add that I provide in my little sliver of the universe, you know, people have been writing about habits for many, many years, and they're going to keep writing about them for many years after this, and I'm just playing a very small role. Uh, and my little role, I think, is to try to provide ideas or distill ideas in a way that's easy to understand and easy to apply. 
And so my primary focus, especially for a book like this, is am I helping the reader do something useful, right? right. Like the question that I kept asking myself, if I ever didn't know what to write for a particular chapter or a particular section, the question I just asked was like, what is the object of the reader's desire? And in my case, the reader's desire is to either build a good habit or break a bad one. And so if what I'm writing, if the next sentence does not help them advance toward building a good habit or breaking a bad one, then I should cut that sentence. And um, so it's really, I guess my primary lens is really about being useful and practical. And that's a little bit different than uh, what a lot of the academics are trying to do. Right. Um, and so I feel like we both, both of us have different roles to play and both are important. And that's kind of my position or role. Yeah. I, we'll talk in a second about your, your, your thoughts about, you know, what constitutes useful ideas. So, so I'm glad you prompted us for that. Uh, look, in academia, uh, there is no reason why academics, even though they're obviously, you know, uh, creating new knowledge, to adding to the core knowledge of their discipline, uh, I think there is a premium to actually engage in faux profundity because that demonstrates somehow that, you, you know, if it's more impenetrable, then it must be more deep, right? And mm. so so it is true. Look, if I'm writing an academic paper that involves a lot of fancy mathematical, you know, modeling or data analyses, there's no way that I can soften that. It's just technical language that you either know or don't know. But in your just regular writing, what is the problem statement? You know, what are the practical applications of this research? I'm housed in a business school, even though we do very theoretical research, it should be wedded, it should be coupled to reality. And yet, that's almost frowned upon. Because if you are uh, obscurantist, we say in French, like you, you're, you're obscuring, then somehow you must be profound. And so I don't think there should be attention. I think that even academics should be pursuing what your goal was. I understand that you're not coming up with the primary research, but the fact that you are thinking, is this helpful? Is this valid? Is this applicable? I think we should all be thinking that even within the you know, hallowed ground of the ivory tower. I believe that very strongly, um, you know, and I think you start to realize that there are competing goals that people have, or there are different objectives, different reasons why people do things. And so, you know, in some cases, actually, the primary objective of publishing this paper in a particular academic field might be to gain status and prestige within that field. It might be to gain the respect of peers or, you know, to gain tenure or the respect of other people in the department. Um, it's actually less about delivering a useful thing to the end reader yeah. and more about how it appears to the, the rest of the peer group. Um, and yeah, I, you know, I think that's a shame in some cases and, uh, you know, who am I to tell people how to, what to do with their careers? Like, it seems like that's how academia is set up to some degree, but, um, my role, I think my objective is to try to be as useful as possible and to distill that in a simple and easy to understand way. Are there any, uh, so you know how they say physicians heal thyself and so on. So the guy who wrote Atomic Habits, how well are you in adhering to your own tenets? It's a great question. I think this is actually one of the misconceptions people have a lot. It's like, oh, you wrote a book on habits, so your habits must be like perfectly dialed in. But my publisher had a great line. Uh, I was talking to her as I was writing the book and saying, man, so ironic that writing this book is kind of like wrecking some of the habits in my personal life because I'm spending so much time uh, focused on the book. And she said, you know, we write the books we need. And I really feel that deeply. Like I have always considered myself and my readers to be peers. The reason that I feel like I can write about these topics in a way that resonates with some people 
is that I have dealt with all the same problems that they're dealing with. You know, like I struggle with all the same stuff that everybody else struggles with procrastinating or not being consistent or having a habit and sticking to it for a few weeks and then falling off course and needing to reclaim it. Like these are all things that we all have dealt with and I have dealt with them plenty uh, myself. And so, um, there are some areas in my life where I feel like my habits are pretty well dialed in. Like I've had a pretty good fitness and strength training habit for the better part of a decade now. Um, nutrition is one that I've always struggled with. And just in the last year, starting to get that on track. Um, sleep is one that I've always been pretty good at. Uh, writing comes and goes. I've had periods where I've had a really good writing habit for a couple years. And then I've had a period where I've been off. So, um, yeah, it depends on the habit, but I have experienced the highs and lows, uh, of it. And I think from most sides. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I recently, so over the past, uh, well, on January 1st of last year, I started a very strict, uh, weight loss journey, which, uh, if we use January 1st as the, the date of beginning, then I've lost about 55 pounds. But then if we go a bit further back, to about a year or two earlier when I was kind of dilly-dallying, then I've lost almost 80 pounds and I've kept it off. I'm now at at the weight that I was perhaps in 95, 96. And I think, although, and forgive me, I haven't yet had a chance to read the the book that you've sent me and I will go through it. I I kind of peruse through it. So I want to give you what my strategy was and I'm almost certain there's going to be elements of it that you would have covered in your book. So number one for me, it was behavioral specificity. So, so it's not just, you know, I'm going to eat healthier because that's so vague as to almost, it's almost impossible to instantiate. How do I measure that? Whereas mm-hmm. it, if it was, you know, my wife is now going to help me. We're going to track everything on myfitnesspal.com. And this is not a plug for them. I'm not being paid by them, but I am using them. So give them kudos. Uh, so at the end of the day, we know, you know, I've eaten 1,685 calories. She keeps track of every single thing she's putting in the food. Uh, so there's an ally that's with me that is that is helping me, right? Everybody around me is not eating pasta all day because then it's like the alcoholic who's seeing everybody drinking, right? Sure. So number one, there's an ally. Number two, there's behavioral specificity. Number three, I altered my thinking from, oh my God, I'm, I'm well over 200 pounds. I'm never going to be able to break this, you know, br- you know solve this. I, I broke it into small parts. Look, if today I'm less than I was a week ago, it's a win. My blood pressure is going to go down a bit. By, by, by managing the size of the Mount Olympus that I have to climb somehow, and then suddenly you check, and my God, I've lost 20 pounds, 30 pounds, 40 pounds. So how do these things fit within some of the stuff that you're talking about in the book? Yeah, those are beautiful examples. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you, sir. Um, It's uh, it's fascinating to me to hear stories like this from people like yourself, or occasionally I'll hear from you know I'll do a talk and readers will come up afterward and they'll say you know I have so many things in your book I was doing that already with like my running habit or something like that and uh, you like kind of helped explain it or put a language to it. And I always find that very affirming because the real I wanted to mention this a minute ago when we were talking about academia and, and some of the those things. For me, the ultimate test of an idea is does it stand up to reality? Does it work in the real world? Um, And there are many things that we can learn from lab-controlled experiments and from research data sets and all kinds of stuff like that. But ultimately, what I really care about is can I apply it? Can I use it in my personal life? And I think most readers are in that position as well. And so um, I spent a good deal of time when I was writing the book analyzing the research, looking at what the previous study said, looking at what previous authors had written, trying to get a feel for the literature and where everything was at. 
But then every time that I came across an idea, I tried to stress test it with, does this like pass the sniff test of reality? Does this feel like something that actually works in the real world? Is this something I can use or have an example of somebody using? And so um, the book is broken out and kind of organized primarily around what I call the four laws of behavior change, which are make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, and make it satisfying. And you touched on a variety of those right there as you're giving your example. Um, Making it obvious is about making the cues that trigger your good habits obvious and easy to see. Um, having my fitness pal on your phone is, I'm sure there are notifications, the app is right there, like it's making it more obvious for you to open it and pick it up and uh, track it. Make it attractive is about how you interpret those cues or how you interpret the experiences in your life so that it's more motivating or enticing or appealing to do it. You mentioned the importance of having an ally like that really changes the social environment really changes how attractive habits do or don't feel to us. So as an example, let's say that you walk outside uh, on Tuesday night and you see that your neighbor is mowing their lawn or cutting the grass. Well, you may feel motivated to cut your grass or you know trim the hedges or something, too. And why do you do it? partially you do it because it feels good to have a clean lawn, but mostly it feels good to have a clean lawn because you don't want to be judged for being the sloppy one in the neighborhood. And so it's actually that social expectation of others that helps uh, you stick to that habit of cutting your grass. And you might do that for 20 or 30 or 40 years, however long you live in that house. Like we wish we had that level of consistency with some of our other habits. And so the social environment is really crucial for making it attractive. Making it easy is the third law, and you mentioned you know scaling it down. Am I just am I making progress this week? Am I a little bit lighter this week than I was last week? Versus um, you know trying to focus on the total amount of weight that you want to lose. And there are many strategies and things we can talk about for how to do that. Um, and then the fourth and final one is making it satisfying, and this is really about having some form of pleasure reward. Um, something that feels good so that you have a positive emotion and your brain can like mark that experience and say, Hey, that's worth repeating again next time. Right. Cause not everything in life is uh, rewarding, you know, like some things are just kind of neutral and don't mean a whole lot. Some experiences are negative and have a cost or a consequence. And if a behavior is not rewarding in some way, it's difficult for it to become a habit because your brain has no reason to want to repeat right. it again in the future. So, those four stages, make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying. I think they give you kind of a high level view of how to build a good habit or make it more likely that behaviors will stick. Have you thought about for, for these four laws? So one, one possibility would be that they are each equally weighted in your likely success. Another one would be, no, no, law three is actually as important as the other three laws. Have you ever thought about sort of attributing importance weights to those four laws? That's a great question. I don't think I've ever been asked that before. Um, That's why I, I'm God's sad. <laughs> I, uh, I have not assigned weights to them myself. My suspicion is that the first and the third laws are uh, of greater importance if we're talking about things that you can do, like ways that you can design your behavior. It's not that the second and fourth laws don't matter. They do. It's just that it's more likely that you have less control over those. And so there it's harder to, um, to influence them. Um, but you know, the first law is heavily influenced by environment design. So like the, the question I like is what is this space? Uh, what behavior does this space encourage? You know? And so it's like, if you walk into a living room, 
all the couches and chairs face the TV. So, you know, people wonder why they watch too much television, but it's like, what does this space encourage? And so uh, there are many different things that you can do to design, you know, you can put the healthy food on the kitchen counter instead of the junk food. You can take the beer and put it on the lowest shelf in the fridge where you're like less likely to see it. You can keep your phone in another room until lunch each day so it doesn't distract you in the office. Like there are all kinds of environment design changes you can make. And so that one is very heavily under your control. And then the third law, making it easy, that really is just up to you. You get to select. Am I trying to build a habit of doing 100 push-ups a day or a habit of doing one push-up a day? And the selection of that initial habit and the difficulty, there are very different activation energies required right. to stick to that habit each day. And so, um, yeah, those I think those two probably get a little bit greater importance than the others. So sticking on the issue of hierarchy of importance weights, so if I were to look at the whole landscape, the whole population of possible habits, there might be some taxonomy by which I order these, right? There's, uh, there are sexual habits, there are food-related habits, there are you know, fitness habits. Is there a hierarchy that we know of or a taxonomy that would allow us to say, when it comes to habits in this grouping versus habits in those groupings, it's simply easier to form habits and not break them here more than here, and here's the reason why. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question as well. Um, so I hesitate to say entire classes of habits are easier to build uh, because you can imagine varying difficulties for habits within that class. But uh, I do think that there's probably, and there is some evidence for this, I write about this late uh, in a later chapter in the book, um, that individual personality influences the ease with which you can form some habits. And that was my next question, actually. So I'm glad you okay. got it. All right. Go so, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with like the big five or sure, you sure. Know, these different measures of personality. And so, you know, you've had these spectrums like introversion on one end, extroversion on the other, or neuroticism or openness to experience, you know, all these types of things. And, um, it's generally, it seems to be generally true that people who are high on certain measures uh, find it easier to build certain habits. So, for example, someone who is high in agreeableness tends to be warm and kind-hearted and so on. And you can imagine that it might be easier or more natural for them to build the habit of, say, writing thank you notes uh, than somebody else who maybe tests lower in that. Um, additionally, I think it also influences your strategy for habits. So, you can imagine somebody who is um, like high in conscientiousness, which tends to mean that you're more orderly and organized and so on. Uh, they may they may be more likely to be the kind of person who like will just remember to do it, whereas someone who's low in conscientiousness and is more, say, maybe spontaneous might need more help from their environment uh, in order to stick with it. And so. I don't think that means you can't do it. I think it just means you need some self-awareness. And so right. you say, oh, well, maybe, you know, if I'm more of a spontaneous type, it's actually really, really important for me to have a well-designed environment so that I can walk in and, like, be primed for success. Um, so I do think there are some individual differences there. Um, interesting question, though, about the class of habits. I was thinking what I thought you were going to ask is do different classes of habits – like, for example, with like, say, sex habits, is it easier, uh, is it better to like make it attractive? And that's like the high lever, uh, the high leverage thing to do. Whereas like fitness habits is better to make it easy. And that's the high leverage. Oh, uh, depending on the class, the different strategy is applied. Right. Yeah, right. got you. And, um, and I don't, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure if that's true either. But I think generally, the first and the third laws of the place where I recommend people focus first 
The reason I, I'm kind of avoiding the second and the fourth law is the second law, making it attractive, it's very important. And I think the social environment is your best avenue for leveraging it. But you can also imagine many habits where if you say, well, just make it attractive or make it unattractive, if you're trying to break a bad habit. Well, imagine like eating a donut. You're like, well, just make it unattractive. Well, it's kind of hard to do that because you already know your brain already knows that it's sugary and tasty and so on. Like, what are you just going to like, un, you're just going to forget how a donut right. tastes. So uh, it's usually more effective to focus on some of the other areas first. Uh, well, look, you, it, I tried, I went through a search of your book to look for the word uh, evolutionary, because as you may or may not know, I'm an evolutionary psychologist and a consumer psychologist. So mm -hmm. I view the entire world through an evolutionary lens. Nothing is decoupled from our evolutionary mechanisms, uh, which comes to, uh, uh, which is viewed as surprising, if not heretical to most social scientists. It amazes me that most social scientists still exist in a world where biology applies to every known species other than human beings. Somehow human <laughs> beings live on a, on, a, on a supra plane where biology ceases to exist. And certainly where I'm housed in the business school, biology, what do you mean biology? Biology doesn't matter in the business school. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that financial traders and employers and employees and consumers exist above their biology. They, 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 they transcend their biology. But in any case, so if I'm looking at your work, to me, it, it should be replete with endless evolutionary explanations and mechanisms. I mean, habits exist precisely because there was an evolutionary mechanism that led them to be of that form. And yet in your book, I mean, I saw you, you referred to Darwin at one point and so on. It's not steeped. It's not rooted in evolutionary theory. So what are your thoughts? Why wasn't it? And would you have altered that? And so on. Oh, no, I'm a huge fan of evolutionary psychology and evolutionary theory. I think that it is the backbone of all of the stuff that we're talking about. Um, I talk about it a little bit. Uh, it's not a book about biology, but biology is going to influence everything that's written in the book. Um, my thinking here is that, uh, so the, the four step framework that I talk about, the make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying, that flows out of these kind of four steps that the sort of like scientific discussion of what a habit is and how it works, which is first, there's some kind of cue. So there's something that you notice or experience. Secondly, there's some type of craving. There's an interpretation or a prediction about what that cue means. Third, there's the action itself. There's the habit you perform. And then fourth, fourth there's the reward, the like uh, feedback from that action. And does it feel pleasurable or not? Now, what I just said there, those four stages, all four of those are biological things, right? There's like the very first step of observing the cue. This is like some kind of sensory experience. Exactly. Often, usually it's visual, but it doesn't just have to be visual. It could be sight, sense, touch, smell, and like any of the senses. Um, well, sorry, once, forgive me for interrupting you, James. Yep. Perceptual biases are biases precisely for evolutionary reasons, right? So I am drawn to the image of this girl that has facial symmetry versus this one that doesn't, or she's got the hourglass figure or she doesn't, or she smells the way that she does and I like it and she does. All of these things, these original first step that you're talking about arise because of evolutionary reasons. Absolutely. Yes. They all, I mean, everything's founded in biology. You can't, as you were kind of jokingly saying a minute ago, like you can't transcend your biology. We are all, we're biological organisms. Um, so, so first there's this like noticing of stimuli, this some kind of taking in of stimuli and that like, uh, there's, it's just an experience of the world in some way. You're, you're noticing some part of your environment. Then there's the interpretation of that stimuli. So this, 
you know, this could be like a whole book in itself, right? Like how you're, how you're interpreting the, the world around you. But the book that really was helpful for me was by Lisa Feldman Barrett, uh, how emotions are made. I'm not sure if you're familiar with yeah, her work, yeah, but, um, and the thing that changed for me, the kind of the big insight that she helped me unpack is often life feels as if it's reactive. Somebody says something, you feel a certain way. Somebody does something, you respond. But in fact, life is actually much more predictive. You are uh, taking in stimuli, you're observing all these things, this first stage that we just talked about, and then you're predicting what that means. And it's actually the meaning, the prediction you assign to those cues and stimuli that determine how you respond. And so um, you may see a plate of cookies on the counter, it's a visual cue, visual stimuli, and then you predict, oh, those would be sweet, sugary, tasty, enjoyable. And it's actually that favorable prediction, the favorable meaning that you assign to a cookie that motivates you to walk over, pick it up and take a bite. So that's the third stage. This is like an actual, you know, uh, motor neuron, right? Movement sort of thing from a biological standpoint. And then you consume the cookie and then fat, there's some kind of feedback loop, you know, where there's the dopamine spike and there's like all these other things that are going on that are um, reinforcing or, um, either reinforcing that you want to repeat this behavior or telling you, Hey, don't repeat that. It wasn't favorable. It wasn't enjoyable. Um, so in a sense, we're describing like the process of learning. You know, I was just like, going to say, you... it feels like it's behaviorism from the 1930s is stimulus response modeling. It's Skinnerian, maybe some Pavlovian. That seems to be the root of the proximate mechanism. I think that is the root, and that is where most of the discussion of habits has been over the last hundred years. The thing that I tried to add into it, and this is partially the Lisa Feldman Barrett piece, is that it's not just behavioral psychology, it's not just uh, Skinnerian in its like uh, overview. Moods and emotions and feelings and interpretations also matter. There's the cognitive side. And that's what that second stage is meant to discuss and kind of give space for. It's not just about offer this cue and have this reward. Um, because the, one of the questions I had was like, well, how come different people respond to the same situation in different ways? Like one person walks in and they see a, a pack of cigarettes on the table and they have this undesired, there's this uh, massive urge to smoke. And then another person walks in and sees the same pack of cigarettes and they are like, I've never smoked a day in my life. Who cares? They just move on. And so it's not just about the cue. Um, and the thing that precedes the habit, it's also about your interpretation of it. So, um, anyway, I'm getting a little long winded here, but the point is, I think all of those, I think all of those stages have uh, very deep biological underpinnings. And the other thing that I would say is there's, there's a whole section in the book where I talk about, um, supernormal stimuli and some of the, uh, biological, um, uh, studies there, Tinbergen and so on. Um, okay. I didn't see all that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, so there's like a discussion about how that influences our habits as well. And, you know, we're living in this modern society where we're surrounded by supernormal stimuli, whether it's, uh, advertisements of a model that's in perfect lighting and has been Photoshopped afterwards or food that we eat that is, has heightened sense of flavor and smell and taste and so on. And all of these things, um, they accelerate or accentuate the dopamine response and lead to uh, more habitual behavior, uh, and in some cases, even more addictive behavior. 
Um, but, uh, yeah, there's a very deep connection there between your biological response and the habits that you form. Yeah. So one of the things you may or may not have heard of this uh, really important distinction. So in evolutionary theory, we talk about the difference between proximate explanations and ultimate explanations. Proximate explanations is where most of science resides. It explains the how and the what of a phenomenon, which I suspect that most of your, uh, treatment of habit formation would come from a proximate perspective. The ultimate explanation for any phenomenon, ultimate not in the superior sense, but ultimate in the Darwinian causal sense, is to ask the why, the Darwinian why, right? So I can study, for example, romantic uh, jealousy and ask, you know, why are men uh, driven to homicidal rage if their wives cheat on them? So approximate explanation might be, well, they have high testosterone that that uh, predisposes them to be more aggressive. The ultimate explanation is that because of the threat of paternity uncertainty, men would have evolved the cognitive, behavioral, and emotional systems to, to want to thwart that threat. And that's why they are so driven to homicidal rage if, if they even suspect uh, infidelity from their long-term partner. And so mm-hmm. it's not that one level of analysis is superior to the other epistemologically, is that you need both levels of analyses to fully understand the phenomenon. So I think uh, habit formation, well, anything, but habit formation would certainly be a, a wonderful place to look at those two distinctions. There are all sorts of proximate things we could study. How does dopamine reward my circuitry? Okay, that's proximate. Ultimate is the Darwinian stuff that I've been talking about. You know, why is it that we would be uh, would be very difficult to break a habit that is very tied to our Darwinian heritage than another one that isn't, right? Well, that's all evolutionary based. Yeah, it's interesting. There, um, yeah, you're making me think of a couple different things. There, so I'll just focus on two. So the first is, you know, um, there's this question that a lot of people have about like, you know, why is it so hard for us to build habits? Why does behavior change seem difficult or whatever? And there are all these, as you said, like proximate explanations of, you know, why you struggle with a particular habit or whatever. Um, and then I tried to think of it and I, I wrote about this in the book as well, the more mm, evolutionary or biological reason. And I think the difference between immediate return environment and delayed return environments plays a role here. You know, like, our ancestors primarily grew up in or um, lived in a immediate return environment for the most part. Their decisions had very quick and rapid responses to their outcomes, like taking shelter from a storm or hiding from a lion on the savanna or foraging for berries in the bush. Like these are all things that are about getting your next meal, surviving tonight, and so on. Whereas now, modern society has all of these structures that we have built where the majority of our actions are actually in a delayed return environment. We go to work today to get a paycheck in two weeks. We go to school today to graduate in four years. We save for retirement today so that we don't don't have to work decades from now. All of these habits that people want to build, study habits and productivity habits and financial habits, they have these very long payoffs. And so we're put in this strange situation where we have this like paleolithic brain um, and we have this modern technological society that's asking us to build. That's a beautiful point. I like that. uh, So I think that's part of the challenge, part of the difficulty, the, the root cause of the difficulty that people have with building behaviors is that we're living in a modern society with a stone age brain. And, um, and so the mismatch between the environment, what the environment, I was going to use exactly that word mismatch. Go ahead. Yeah. The mismatch between what the environment is asking and, uh, what we are, uh, hardwired for, 
uh, I think leads to some friction or challenges there. Yeah, so I mean, I loved your example. I mean, I, I'm going to call it now, and and you can you can use it if you'd like. Uh, I'm going to call it temporal incongruity, right? Uh, mm. Your example is exactly that, right? Uh, I want it now is how my brain has evolved because I don't have a long window. I'm myopic in my temporal lens versus what you said, which is we're planning for the future and so on. But the mismatch hypothesis, that's actually the actual name of it in, in evolutionary theory. The mismatch hypothesis explains a lot of problems we get into in today's world. And actually, that's something that I talk about in my next book that I'm currently working on. So and you probably already know this, but maybe some of our viewers don't, so I'm, I'm saying it more for them. Uh, you know, we've evolved in an environment of caloric scarcity and caloric uncertainty that lead to our gustatory preferences being that I want a lot of fatty foods and I want to hoard it. In today's environment where there isn't caloric scarcity or caloric uncertainty, that mismatch then creates colon cancer and heart disease and diabetes and, and the rest of the big killers. And mm -hmm. so if we if we address that mismatch, we get rid of our a, a lot of our problems. Uh are there other examples that are linked to the mismatch uh, hypothesis other than the temporal incongruity one that might explain why we don't stick to some of our habits? Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think, um, well, first, just on the food point that you just made, which is interesting. Think of how strange of a time this is in history for in terms of like consuming calories. For all of human history, it was the case that if you ever wanted to consume calories, you had to expend calories to get them. You had to go hunt for the food or forage for the you know vegetables or whatever. Um, but now you don't have to expend any calories. If you want, you can just tap a button on your phone and continue sitting on the couch and the food will be delivered to you. It's a very uh, strange mismatch compared to how we have uh, historically uh, consumed food. Um, okay, to your question about are there other things uh, environmental mismatch-wise, something that I think is uh, – it, it falls – it's a natural consequence. It's related to uh, temporal uh, incongruity, but it's not the same as what I just mentioned. Um, you can consider most behaviors as producing multiple outcomes across time. So – Broadly speaking, let's say that a behavior has like an immediate outcome and an ultimate outcome. So say going to the gym, the immediate outcome of working out is actually often pretty unfavorable. Like your muscles are sore. You feel like an idiot when you're in the gym for the first time. You're worried that people are judging you that first like day or week or so. There's not really a whole lot of payoff. Um, it's only a year or two years or however long later that you start to see the changes in your body that you were hoping for. And so the ultimate outcome is favorable. Right. In many good habits have that pattern where the immediate outcome is actually kind of unfavorable. There's like a lot of cost up yeah. front and then the ultimate outcome is favorable. Many bad habits have the often, uh, have the opposite, uh, si uh, situation, which is, the immediate outcome of like eating a donut is actually pretty great. It tastes good. It's sugary. It's tasty. Lights up all your senses. And it's only the ultimate outcome if you keep eating donuts for a year or two that's unfavorable. Smoking a cigarette, same way. The immediate outcome of smoking a cigarette is like, well, maybe you get to socialize with friends outside the office. You get to take a break from work. Maybe it curbs your nicotine craving or reduces stress. It's only the ultimate outcome five or ten years later that's unfavorable. So I actually think this is first of all, it's sort of a useful way to define what is a good habit and what is a bad habit because all behaviors serve you in some way. Uh, that's why you're doing them. You know, the smoking a cigarette serves you in the immediate sense in that it gives you that rest and, you know, lets you, gives you, it curbs nicotine craving, all the stuff I just said. Um, but 
I think we could define a bad habit as the ultimate outcome is unfavorable and a good habit as the ultimate outcome is favorable. And that mismatch between the cost of your good habits is in the present and the cost of your bad habits is in the future. That I think also ties into this immediate return, delayed return thing, this like paleolithic brain we have where it's like, well, why does it, damn, it seems so easy for me to slide into bad habits. Right. And it's like, yeah, well, you know, you're prioritizing immediate rewards. This is what you're wired to do. And bad habits often seem to have a lot of immediate benefits. And geez, why is it so hard for me to stick to good habits? And it's like, well, the, retor- the rewards are often delayed. And so it's uh, that temporal distance between what you're prioritizing and what it gives you um, creates some challenge. Yes, I'm going to link what you just said to some stuff that I've written uh, in my academic work. So if you look, for example, at the typical uh, intervention from, say, Health Canada or whatever the equivalent is in in the U.S., uh, the CDC or whatever, uh, where you're asking consumers to do something to improve their health, Oftentimes, it comes from an economics of information perspective, which basically argues if the consumer is doing the wrong thing, it must be that they don't know any better and just feed them more information and then they will they will fall in line, which, of course, is completely untrue because it's not as though people don't know that smoking and leading a sedentary life is about, oh, geez, eating French fries all day is bad for me. I didn't know that. Thank you, doctor. Right. And so what ends up happening is there's a misalignment between what the people are craving in terms of information to change their behavior and what the operative thinking is. And so I'm going to link it to temporal in a second. So take, for example, smoking. Uh, It turns out that if you tell people, look, when you're 75, you're going to develop uh, heart disease. Well, when I'm 21, I'm immortal. And I don't, you know, 75 is so far away that I don't care. But if you tell young men that the number one predictor of you experiencing sexual dysfunction when you are 19, 20, and 21, as if you're a heavy smoker, it doesn't take a fancy evolutionary psychologist to understand that that's going to get my attention. Telling me that I'm going to get lung disease, uh, lung cancer when I'm 78 doesn't matter. I'm immortal. Telling Mm -hmm. me that I can't perform tonight with my gorgeous girlfriend or the one that I'm trying to hit on at at tonight's party, that really gets my attention. Second example from the female side. Telling me, assume now I'm a woman, telling me that I might get melanoma if I stay in the sun too long or I go to the artificial sun, sun tanning salon four times a week so I can maintain a glow and I'm going to get melanoma when I'm 67, I don't care. But showing me what the aesthetic ravages will be to my skin now in two years, that gets... So that's all temporal based, right? Because you're either pushing the cost down the line where I don't care, I could discount that cost or I can give you examples of how you're going to be harmed today. Now that gets my attention. So it's exactly what you're saying in a different context. Yeah, that's a fascinating practical application. You know, like how can it be relevant to what you're dealing with right now? The, the person who's 74 or 67 or might as well be a different person. You exactly. Know? Um, I have a question for you on this. Sure. I, there's a, I don't know if you've ever seen, the, there's a famous clip of Richard Feynman talking about, they asked him like, why, uh, why is ice slippery? And he like, breaks down, it's, it's on YouTube, you can look it up, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. It basically, he starts talking about like, well, if you ask me like, why does you know, so-and-so fall on the ice? You're like, well, they fell on the ice because uh, you know, they had an argument with somebody and they were running out the door too fast and you know, it was that icy outside. And, then, and so this is all this like proximate explanation. Right. And then he starts going deeper and deeper and talking about like, okay, well, okay, but why? Well, ice is slippery because uh, it turns out that when you uh, put pressure on it that the atoms uh, create this like slippery, you know, situation where 
they're sliding over the top of each other. And that turns out that the pressure creates this like thin layer of water between your, um, between your shoe and the ice. And that leads to slipperiness. And then he keeps going like deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole. And the point that he tries to get to is at some point you have to assume some level of knowledge. And so I guess my question for you here is like how deeply you take this, uh, this explanation, you know, like, at some point we could go even further down the stack than like say evolutionary biology. We could get to like some form of chemistry or something where we say, you know, well, uh, the reason is because we are biological organisms and biological organisms require energy. And if you expend energy and you expend all of it, then you're dead and you're no longer alive anymore. And so why do we build habits? Well, ultimately we build them because it conserves energy and that helps us survive. Um, and, like that is a very deep root cause, but it also is like a little less useful to the end reader because it's a fantastic question. I, I got you. So there's kind of like a balance. I'm just curious how you. Think yeah, about that's that. a that's a fantastic question. So I can answer it in one of two ways. I could answer I could answer it epistemologically, or practically. And so let me do both. Okay. Sure. At the epistemological level, what you're basically saying is that to explain any phenomenon fully involving biological agents, you need both levels of analyses. You need the proximate and ultimate. So on a practical level, you could completely operate on, on, on in proximate and it'll be fine, but it's an incomplete explanation because there, the ultimate why still needs to be answered. Now, you may not care about it, but it is there to be answered. So that's sort of the purest epistemological answer. But then you might say, okay, but I asked you about what are the practical applications? What? Why should I ever care about being an ultimate world? So I'll, I'll answer that question via a, an actual example. One that I use in some of my lectures, and, and you'll see in a second, it's an incredibly powerful one because I get then OBGYNs, uh, gynecologists who are in the room in my MBA classes as practicing OBGYN. They come up to me and say, we didn't study this in medical schools. So let me explain it. So pregnancy sickness is something that is experienced around the world in very predictable ways. It's usually called morning sickness, but it's, it shouldn't be called morning sickness because some women don't experience it in the morning. So it's pregnancy sickness. It happens, you could set your watch to it. It happens during the first trimester, during a period called organogenesis, which is when the organs are forming in utero. Okay, so there's a million proximate questions I could address here. You know, how does the fluctuating hormonal levels of a woman affect the severity of her pregnancy sickness? Okay, that's a great question. Now, when I, if I'm a woman who's experiencing pregnancy sickness, if I go see my OBGYN and say, please help me, what they'll do is they'll give you typically a pill that attenuates those pregnancy sickness symptoms. It turns out from an evolutionary perspective, that is the perfectly wrong thing to do. So, And you could only get to why it is perfectly wrong by having asked the ultimate question. What is the ultimate explanation for why women experience pregnancy sickness? It's because it is a protective mechanism against the possible exposure of teratogens, foodborne pathogens, that the woman might have. Therefore, when I am in organogenesis, I need to make sure that I'm never exposed to that. Therefore, I'm attracted to pickles. Pickling serves an antimicrobial property. So all the things that I'm attracted to and all the things that I'm repulsed by 
are exactly in line with solving that adaptive problem. And there, and then as an extra insurance policy, I then will vomit in case I ingested something. Well, it turns out that women who experience more pregnancy sickness are less likely to have miscarriages. Women who experience more pregnancy sickness are more likely to have a good outcome in terms of their childbearing trajectory. Therefore, it's a protective mechanism. But when I went to see my OBGYN, he or she gave me the mechanism that shuts down that. I could have only gotten to the right answer by answering the ultimate explanation that i answer yeah, your question i um it makes me think about sometimes i feel like the role of science is to it's not necessarily to discover the um practical solutions like often pe people have experimented with many many practical solutions some of them just complete crackery and some of them are you know like very accurate um, it's to rule out the ones that are ridiculous. It's to rule out the, the, all the, all the wives tales and the things that are not effective. Um, you know, it's like practitioners will have discovered some things that work. They just don't know the reason because they don't have that track to the ultimate, uh, exactly. uh, root cause. And, um, only by knowing the ultimate cause, can you be sure that the proximate answers are on the right trajectory? Bingo. You got it. That's exactly right. Beautiful. All right. Let's talk about a few more minutes. Uh, although, as I always tell all my guests, because they're always fascinating, I could keep you here for another four hours. Sure. Uh, you mentioned useful ideas. So I want to break that down and I want to link it to some. So one of the things that I do in my, well, I should probably do it in my undergraduate classes, but I do it in my graduate classes. I assign to them a paper titled, that's interesting, exclamation point, where a sociologist had come up with a framework, 12 criteria for deciding what constitutes an interesting research question, right? Because you and I can say, oh, that's an interesting topic to study or that's not an interesting, but how do we judge that, right? And mm -hmm. so he came up with a framework and, and most of his 12 criteria were of a surprise nature. We expected A to be correlated to B, but it wasn't. Aha, that's interesting. We expected these two things to uh, be unrelated, but they were, ah, that's interesting. So it's kind of a counterintuitive, right? And of course, those are not the only criteria by which we judge how interesting research is. So is there a similar taxonomy that you can use to answer the question, this is useful, this is not useful? I think so. Um... I feel like the first question, the, the, my only hesitation is that I think it's a very personal answer. So the, the first question is always, what are you optimizing for? True. And that's going to be a very different answer depending on the person. Some people optimize for making money. Some people optimize for free time. Some people optimize for love and connection and, you know, any other uh, infinite number of things that, you know, you could want to design your life around. But once you know the answer to that question or once you have some clarity around what you're trying to optimize for, then you can start to uh, determine whether a particular avenue or behavior or strategy is useful or not. Um, so, you know, even this person who wrote that that paper, I'm not sure what they are optimizing for. It sounds like duh, surprise and delight and interestingness, you know, is, is part of that. And so you get to a different set of answers than if you were trying to optimize for um, speed of application, for example, like what are the insights that could be applied most readily or most quickly? So, um, I think that that's probably the first place to start. Um, there are some other things I think about though, more generally outside of that, that, uh, that line of questioning. Like the first one is, can people actually use this? Like, can, is this something that could be impl implemented? And you, you'd be surprised how many strategies like 
sound good, but they actually just can't be applied that readily or that easily. Um, the other one, and this is more of a probabilistic thinking piece, is does this have a likelihood of paying off in the relevant time period? There, there are a lot of strategies that will pay off at some point, but you may not be interested in it paying off 17 years from now. You're interested in, can this pay off for me in the next six months? Right. And that changes the set of strategies that you should follow. So the, the relevant time period that you're talking about um, changes the answer. Um, yeah, so there, there are a couple of different things that you can run uh, or questions or lenses you can run that through. I wonder though if there are some things that, so you said you were talking about, you know, depending on what you wish to optimize, uh, will determine what is useful. And I agree with that. Uh, as a matter of fact, the field of operations research is all about what is the objective function that you're trying to optimize. So you're, you're exactly right. But you, I, I suspect though that there are some things that are universally useful. So for example, if there is a way for me to live my life as to minimize regret, something that I talk about in my next book, I suspect that we all agree that we would be better off living life with less regret rather than more regret. So notwithstanding the individual differences across us, I suspect that there might be some universal markers of what is considered useful. Yeah, I think uh, one lens that I, this is the second chapter of my book, I talk about this concept of identity-based habits. And I think this is an important lens to look at your behaviors through. And I would consider it to be something relatively universal as you're mentioning here, which is basically start with, instead of starting with the result that you want, uh, I want six pack abs or I want to double my income or whatever the thing is, instead of starting with that, start with the type of identity that you want to reinforce. Who is the type of person that I wish to become and which behaviors reinforce that desired identity? I think this is actually the ultimate reason that habits really matter. There's like the, um, there are all the reasons that we talk about on the surface, like habits will make you be more productive. They'll help you make more money or lose weight and, you know, um, become calm and reduce stress. And it's true that habits can do all that stuff. But I think the deeper reason that habits matter is that your behavior, your habits provide evidence or they are how you embody a particular identity, right. right? So like every day that you make your bed, you embody the identity of someone who is clean and organized. Uh, every time that you do one push up, you embody the identity of someone who doesn't miss workouts. Every time you write one sentence, you embody the identity of someone who is a writer. And this is why I say like, you know, the real goal is not to run a marathon. The goal is to become a runner. You know, the goal right. is not to write a book. The goal is to become a writer. And in this case, I'm using like labels like runner and reader and writer and so on. But it's true for just more general characteristics as well. Like I'm the type of person who finishes what they start or I'm the type of person who's good at remembering people's names. And we have all kinds of stories that we tell ourselves about who we are and what we stand for and what we're good at or what we're bad at. You know, stories like I'm terrible with directions or I'm bad at math or, you know, I have a sweet tooth. Like these are all aspects of your identity that you tell yourself. And if you can use small habits to reinforce your desired identity, if you can cast votes for the type of person you wish to be, you know, it's like every action you take is like a vote for the type of person you wish to become. Right. And so no, doing one push up does not transform your body, but it does cast a vote for I'm the type of person who doesn't right. miss workouts. And that's meaningful, even if the, the physical transformation isn't there yet. So I think that lens is a relatively universal way to look at behaviors. Yes. How do I determine if this is useful or not? 
Well, is it reinforcing my desired identity? And if it is, then I would say it's a useful behavior. Well, that answer was very useful. Uh, I mean, genuinely, because, really, because it, it, it sort of encapsulates that whole concept. Uh, two last questions for you. Uh, one a bit more substantive than the other. Uh, in, in your, I went to your website and you listed, so just to get out of the habit stuff for a bit uh, at the tail end of our chat, uh, you list a whole bunch of other things that you're interested in, photography, which I'm also interested in, uh, oh. architecture, of course, sports. Uh, is there a way for you to explain why those are, because those are very, very different. I mean, some of, some of them are similar. Architecture and photography could be similar. Uh, mm-hmm. you know. Is there some rubric that runs through all your non-habit related interests? Um, yeah, possibly. So uh, I think something I've discovered about myself really only recently have I come to this realization, but I like creating things. So, you know, I'm an entrepreneur and I built a business as a photographer, you create or make photos. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes I'll host events or things with other authors. So in that case, you're like creating a space or creating an experience. And so I like the process of creating. I actually, I was talking to a friend. He was, uh, told me, Hey, I'm, you know, making good money doing this. He was doing some kind of options trading or stock trading sort of thing. And I was, I was like, Oh, tell me about it. I'm like, that's kind of interesting. And I spent like an hour or two kind of like he gave me some YouTube videos to watch and some things to listen to. And ultimately I realized I have no interest in this. And the reason is not, it's not because it doesn't make money. It might make good money. It's because I'm not creating anything while I'm making it. And so that was actually, that was like an interesting point for me where I realized, oh, I like, sure, everybody wants to make good money, but I want to be building something along the way. And so I think that is a core thread that runs through a lot of what I do. Uh, and then in terms of architecture and sports, I think the, the thread there, and this is, to be honest, this is one thing I feel like I miss the most in my current career. I spend a lot of time looking at a screen, right? Writing books or doing interviews like this or whatever. It's a very digital And, uh, I really like physical space. Um, you know, I like playing sports and being outside and moving around. I like the physicalness of architecture, uh, designing a new building or creating a a physical space to be in the feel of a room that has vaulted ceilings or the lines of sight out of a window across a meadow. Uh, and so I think those elements, it's the physical world, the, the substantive reality of it that I really like. And, um, I feel like any excuse I can get to just be outside more yep. and enjoy physical space, I like that. And so I think those two things provide that part. Yeah, I, I love your answer. And the reason why I sort of went like this, because I've actually used a very similar uh, example when describing some people that I know who, who work, who are high-powered folks on Wall Street. And I always tell my wife, I, I, I say it with some derision, not, not because I'm trying to be mean, but it's precisely the example that you gave, which is they don't create anything. I mean, they create more zeros in the bank account, but they don't... But, Right, but 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 a chef creates a dish, right? Before the chef put the ingredients together, that dish didn't, didn't exist. exist. And yeah. then I eat it, and I have this incredible hedonic experience that came from his or her creation. The architect creates a building. I see it. You and I create written word that hopefully someone goes on a beach somewhere, and then they send you a picture of a selfie with that book. You go, I created that. That's incredible. And so one of the things that I talk about in my next book is that, you know, whatever profession you pick, if you can be within the creative space, it's going to bring you all other things considered a lot more purpose and meaning, you know, for bang for the buck or whatever the expression is. Okay, that was fantastic. Last question, very easy one, a softball. 
Uh, are there any projects that you're working on, including you said your next book that you would like to use this forum to promote or plug? Take it away, James. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think uh, if you enjoyed this conversation, probably the best place to go is just to check out Atomic Habits or to go to jamesclear.com and click around there. As you mentioned uh, at the start of the show, um, in addition to the book, the primary thing I'm known for is the newsletter. Uh, so it's called 321. And each week I share three short ideas from me, two quotes from other people, and then one question to think about uh, that week. And um, over a million people subscribe. So feel wow. free to go to jamesclear.com and check it out and uh, see, what you'll, see what you think of it. Oh, fantastic. Uh, stay on the line just so we can say bye offline. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Thank you for coming on. Best of luck with your next book. And I'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Wonderful. Thank you.